Hey there, it's Nick Turzo, and this is The Radical Podcast. No, we won't be overthrowing any governments, but we will be learning from radical creatives who rule the world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's show. Uh, my guest today is Uber Film Music Supervisor, Stephen Gazicki. Steve is a Emmy-nominated, Grammy-winning music supervisor who has worked on films such as La La Land and In the Heights and many others. Um, he supervised the TV miniseries Fosse Verdon, which he was nominated for an Emmy. Um, and he also ran music at Lucasfilm for a few years. Before we begin, um, I wanted to pay my huge respect and uh, mention the passing of composer Ennio Morricone. Um, this man was such a complete genius. Um, during my last couple of months in quarantine, um, I had the chance to rewatch the classic Westerns, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, and The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Um, and his music score just slayed these films and really altered what film score would become. The opening in Tarantino's Hateful Eight just blew my mind. I uh, didn't even know it was Morricone at the time, but when that music locked with a visual, it was utter perfection and could only be Morricone and eventually went on to win the Oscar for the best original score. So rest in peace, my fellow Italian. Your legacy lives in eternity and you changed how the game is played. Um, so coming from this, this leads to my chat with Steven Gazicki, where we'll discuss narrative, storytelling, visuals, and music. Enjoy. Hi, Steven. How are you today? I am doing very good. How about yourself? I am well. Thank you for taking time to sit with me today and have a little chat. You're very welcome. I've been wanting to speak to you for a while, uh, even though it's only my second podcast, but I will. <laughs> there were many years ahead of that. I have so many questions still, even though we've been friends forever. So um, it's been a very long time. I'm not even sure. Yeah. So when how are began? you? Do <laughs> how are you doing work? I mean, everything production, everything's still shut down, right? That's kind of where it's at. Yeah, everything is shut down. I was working on a film, shooting a film in New York, right when the world went sideways. So uh, I escaped from New York and came back to LA, and it's been a bit of a waiting game since then and a lot of uh, conversations regarding what the go forward is you know and making plans for you know, the relaunch of, of several of my projects and how we might navigate that and what the world looks like and what we can and we can't do so it's a lot of um sort of just guesswork i guess and looking towards various recommendations from, you know, the SAG and, and other unions to see, you know, how we can make things work. Right. I mean, can productions in theory that are shooting outdoors work? I mean, instead of in a soundstage, I, I know it doesn't help you with being in a recording studio, but. Yeah. In theory, uh, in theory they can. And it's, you know, I, I've been having a lot of conversations and I'm on a, a few different projects, all varying in scope right now. And each project poses its own unique problem in the heights we're in post and we're trying to restart the mixing process so all of that would be based on a 
mixed stage and how do we navigate that and how many people can be there. Tick, Tick, Boom was a musical that I was on in New York and that's in, that was in front of the cameras. And while we can, New York is restarting to the point where soon we can begin shooting and you know actors can do their thing and everyone's um, broken out into pods. Everyone has their own little group that they have to stick to. Singing becomes an issue, which is, of course, that's my department. Uh, it is not advised that actors sing full out at one, one, one another for obvious reasons. Yes. yes. You know, <clears throat> spit and everything else. So we have to figure out how, how do you make a musical in this environment where people need to be singing. And then beyond that, when, you know, luckily Tick Tick Boom is sort of a smaller musical. It doesn't have the, the grand scope of an in the, height, in the Heights where there are like 500 dancers singing and dancing at any given time. Um, Tick, How Tick, much Boom of that had you gotten done recording wise, like in the Heights per se? Everything. We actually, um, we were finishing our last score date as New York shut down. And I was sitting at the scoring stage and just watching, you know, <laughs> obsessively looking at Twitter and CNN and everything else and listening to mayor's conversations. And over the course of that day, it became clear that everything was going to shut down and I had to get out of New York. So we wrapped up the session and then I got on a plane home the next day. Incredible. And luckily we had recorded everything. So all of, all of the material is there. It's just mixing it down. So we were really lucky that God, had, had we still had recording left to do, which I know I have friends on several other productions that still have a lot of recording to do. Those are hurdles that we don't have to jump over. Wow. All right. Well, I want to jump back to both of those a little later down the road because they're both kind of fascinating projects. So I don't want to just skip over them because of COVID. Yes, um, <laughs> so we're on the pandemic <laughs> chapter of our conversation. <laughs> yes, lucky us. Um, so tell me, so you you're in LA. That's where you reside. You've been there for years. But you're a San Diego boy. Yeah, that's where you were born, raised. I was actually born in Michigan, which ah. you may or may not have known. And my dad was transferred when I was a kid, like eleven, I think. And we went to San Diego at that point. Got it. That makes sense. What's your dad? I can still say that I'm from Detroit. That gives me a certain amount of street cred. Yeah, that's, it is. That's a ton of street, street cred. Well, it's actually, uh, it's and interesting. What, and I, it was Detroit and I just, not just a sidebar for a second, but I had these two uncles uh, when I was growing up in Detroit that were very much into, uh, you know, 1970s, the music of Detroit, which was MC5 and Iggy Pop and all that stuff. And they would play it in their bedroom. And I was a, you know, you know, wimpy kid from the suburbs. And it was like that, them playing that music to me at nine, 10 years old, like changed everything, you know? And then it's it, that, that, that was kind of the spark. And then moving to San Diego was, was when it sort of, my love of music took hold. Right. With the great flagship of 91X down 91, there. Did that yeah, have nine, any influence on oh, you? Oh, no, 91X was everything. Yes. You know? And I became that kid that, uh, you know, my first job was in a record store, Licorice Pizza, you know, rest, pizza. Rest, in, rest in peace for that wonderful chain. And I was this weird kid growing up in San Diego that was just obsessed with British music. 
you know, if it didn't come from England, I really wasn't so interested. <laughs> yeah. That's my, f my first impression of you. So I was always, uh, Oh really? You know, well, and though I was an A&R guy, you know, and had some reference points of musical history and I was always a little intimidated by you because I thought you were much more encyclopedic in your knowledge of music, especially, you know, on, on the UK front or alternative music. I don't, you know, it, it, I mean, thank you. And it, it, for me, I don't know, I don't know what, where it came from, I guess, but, you know, I would, <clears throat> I read all the British magazines when I was a kid. I read, you know, everything from like the, you know, from NME and Melody Maker to the more poppy stuff like um, Smash Hits. And, I, you know, if I started to like a band, whether it was a Bauhaus or whatever, or the Cure, and then, you know, I'd read this article and the, the band members would then describe their influences. So then, oh, I need to go back and learn about television or craft work or whatever it was. Um, so I just had a curiosity as a kid. I have no idea where I'm getting No, that's, well, in San Diego was like this bubble um, yeah. having kind of gone to college there and started my career there too, um, you know, that you could actually promote bands like the cure and like the Thompson twins and they could sell out arenas down there where they yeah. couldn't do that anywhere else in the country. Yeah. Like Depeche mode might as well have been Bruce Springsteen and precisely, Diego, you know, or LA with K rock. And which is so interesting that the, you know, two sunniest climates. So just openly and enthusiastically embraced the doom and the gloom of, um, of British new wave. <laughs> All of it. It was a man, the alarm. I yeah. mean, it was crazy who came yeah. through there and, it, and they had a, huge audiences. Yeah. And I, you know, back in you know, 1983, 84, you know, you would see tour schedules for tears for years and Depeche Mode or whoever it was. And you say, Oh, New York, LA, San Diego. And that was it. You know, they were <laughs> like, they, they kind of didn't go anywhere else. Well, then on top of that, you had KGB there, which was one of the great, you know, hard rock rock stations in the country, too. So you have these two really formidable radio stations in different formats down there. Not that you ever listened to KGB, I assume, but... Uh, well, I did. I, you know, I, I always... Right. Did you do your college there or, or not in San Diego? Uh, no, I went to LA. So you, you came to LA. Where did you go to school? UCLA. So that's what brought you to Los Angeles. Yeah. yeah. And were you a good boy and you graduated? I, I, I was a good boy and I graduated. I was a history major, which makes really not much sense. But oh, you were. It was what it was. What was the plan for that? It was poverty a, or what? Poverty, yeah, <laughs> poverty, yeah, poverty uh, and naivete. No, I, my dad was a, a history nut and a trivia nut. And so he instilled in me this love of history and facts. And so that it fascinated me. I can understand that. That makes sense. And then out of school, what did you do with your history degree? Forgot everything I learned. <laughs> <laughs> did you go, I mean, what was your first like music industry job in Los Angeles? Yeah, well, I, uh, UCLA had a radio station, KLA. So I was a program director of the station. I was a DJ for a while and then a program director. So through that, I started doing internships. I interned at Chrysalis, long last Chrysalis for a while. As at UCLA, in one of my courses, I was in class with Peter Asher's wife, Peter Asher, the manager. Yes, yes. And I, manager and producer. And I immediately after college went to work in his management office. 
I mean, it was, you know, I just, what a, what a amazing stroke of luck to have fallen into that, you know? He's a lovely, lovely, talented man. So. Oh, ab- absolutely. And I, you know, and it was, you know, because I, I didn't, you know, I knew that I, okay, by that point, I really started to focus, okay, I really want to be in music somehow. I'm, 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 I'm now figuring this out. And is management maybe part of it? Because I've done stuff with, at record labels, which was really interesting. And, oh, well, here's an opportunity to work in management. Is that what I want to do? And it, it, the, the sweater didn't fit me all that well, I guess. And I ended up befriending someone that was a, a that worked at Virgin Records. And I was told, oh, well, there's you know, an opening in the mailroom or you know, whatever it was at the time. And so I, I, I left Peter's office and went to work at Virgin. Okay. And that's where I met you. You are the dear Danny Goodwin. Um, And you were doing marketing there primarily after the mailroom and you were in the marketing area. I actually, an opening came up in radio promotion, which, you know, I didn't even know what that was really. So I, 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 and the first full-time job was in radio promotion and I was in radio promotion for an assistant in radio promotion for a couple of years. And then I uh, moved into marketing as a product manager. Nice. Nice. Um, and I know a very special person you worked with um, in while well, you were a product manager. Yeah. <laughs> Who were some of the people you worked with, though, other than this very special musician and artist? A very special person. I, I got to work with uh, Smashing Pumpkins, Lenny Kravitz, Rolling Stones, Tina Turner. Uh, but I, I, you're alluding to David Bowie, who I ended up working with very closely for a couple of years. I am alluding to David Bowie. Yeah. So, Which, tell, and, us, and I, tell me about that. I mean, that's just fascinating to me. And I, you know, I don't think I've ever worked, uh, maybe some artists at that level, but he's just legendary. So tell me a little bit about that. It was, I, I, I do you ever ha- sort of look back at your life and, and you think, wait, was, did that actually happen? And, and I, that's how I look back at this chapter, uh, because how that even came about, like, you know, I, just for the record, by the way, you know, as my, as I started to build my musical DNA, we became the thing. He was, he directed, you know, he, he was, he was, you know, I was obsessed. I was, and, and he was my inspiration and, you know, all, all the platitudes you can throw on David Bowie. I, you know, I vigorously, you know, believed in all of those. And I was working at, as a promotion assistant at Virgin and I found out that we signed David. And I thought, oh my, you know, I, I, after I picked myself up off the floor, I overheard, oh, in signing David, we also acquire three of his catalog records for. And I somehow like sometimes when you're young, you just have just confidence and you do things that maybe you would not do again as an adult. So when I was 24, 23 years old, and I took it upon myself to write the head of one of the heads of the company, Nancy Berry, um, a letter saying, Hey, okay, you've, you know, you've inherited these records and these are all the cool bonus tracks that you can split up between the records to make the packages more exciting. And like, who, who am I to recommend you. this to the head of the company? I, you know, I, I don't know where that came from, but I just did it. And these were, you Good know, memos. You. So I had to print it out and put it in her, you know, you know, it's not, there were no emails at the time on her tray. And 
she was in a meeting talking about the uh, the albums they were reissuing. And uh, Michael Plenn, who was my boss at the time, uh, head of promotion, was in the meeting. And Nancy said, oh, well, we've got these records coming out, but there's no interesting bonus tracks, so we're just going to put them out as they are. And Michael raised his hand and, oh, did you not see Gaziki's memo that he slipped under your door? And she said, oh, no, I must have missed that. So I got a call from the, the meeting. Gaziki, bring your memo in here. So I ran into the meeting with all the executives, through my, you know, handed over my memo, and then left wondering what the hell was going on. And next thing you know, she offers me a job. That's amazing Good for you. <laughs> she, yeah. in bringing David Bowie into the fold, she realized that she, this was he, such a, as you said earlier, just significant caliber, but also but just heritage, and you can't screw it up. So she realized that she needed somebody in her circle that had, that knew everything about him and his career and could be a good point person. For not just catalog stuff, but for um, just for his his output as a whole and his interaction with the label as a whole. So I sort of started off basically managing the uh, reissues of Let's Dance and Tonight and Never Let Me Down and the Tim Mission record. Um, and then that evolved into me working with David personally, which was just a very surreal, insane thing. And then, you know, he took to me, which is really weird. And we got along, and so she elevated me to the position of his product manager, being the one that was responsible for his um, uh, his career on a day to day basis at the level. And I was twenty five years old. That's amazing. And what did he um, regarding new output at that time? I mean, did, uh, which record did he put out during that time? Or was outside he... was the main focus at that time. Got it. You know, because after we reissued, there was a period of reissuing the those uh, those particular albums, and then um, and then it was all you know, full force outside and the tour that followed. Okay. So cool. I went on tour with him for a little bit, and it was just really very. So you're in the label fold for how many years? Because I'm trying to figure out how the transition occurs, kind of more towards your current yeah. career. Yeah, that. Um, so after work, I was at Virgin for a total of maybe five years, I think. And I was working with David for a year and a half, two, no, two years or so years of that. And at a certain point, I, I, my desire to be a writer came, came roaring back. I don't know why. It just did. I think a lot of it was at the time. So after I, we successfully launched the Outside album in the tour, then I moved on to working really closely with uh, Lenny for his circus record and uh, Tina Turner for uh, the golden eye song she did with you too. And then pumpkins I was working with. And so, and so I kind of inherited other bands and these are all marquee bands, right? So, you know, I was not part of developing them or um, I had no creative input. I really, I likened it at the time, like I'm just shoveling coal in the furnace on the, on the train to just keep it going. That's what I'm doing. You know, that's and the I, beauty of beauty of the product manager <laughs> position, right? Because yeah. as an A&R guy, you kind of only get to work with the people you really sign and develop and yeah. you know, what are the odds you're going to develop and sign eight superstars around the world that yeah. odds are against you, but product managers, you know, are kind of in a weird way. It's kind of fortunate. They get to kind of work with the creme de la creme, at the highest levels. So Yeah, which is fun. And then at a certain point for me, it stopped being fun. And why is that? And 
I, you know, again, I just felt like I, okay, I am, you know, here, you know, I'm spending all of my time um, maximizing these artists' careers, but what am I doing for myself? And am I really growing here? Am I learning anything new at this point? Am I um, maximizing my potential? I say using air quotes. Um, and for some reason, I thought, you know, I, I want to go off and create my own art or do my own or, or sort of make my put my own stamp on the world somehow. And at the time, I was uh, co-publishing a, a music magazine called Strobe. It was all about the Silver Lake alternative music scene. And I was, um, uh, you know, sort of helping manage some bands and being DJing in some clubs. So I was just kind of being that, that music guy about LA. And I'm like, you know what? I mean, I just, you know, I, maybe I, I think I want to focus on being a music journalist full time. So I quit. Um, and so I went off to be a music journalist, which I soon discovered is not the highest paying position <laughs> when you're just starting out. And I was getting a lot of gigs just through the people that I knew, but it was not paying the bills. So I was a music journalist for about a year, maybe. And then I ran, literally ran out of money. Absolutely ran out of money. And I started to have parties at my apartment so that I could take the empty bottles back to the store and use that money to buy food. Oh, man. That's where I'd gotten you're an artist. You became an, an artist. artist. Yes. You wanted to be an yeah. artist. But here's Congrats. this is you know. Uh, but then it, it, an interesting twist of events ha- happened. My my very first boss, this woman Jackie, that um that we had worked at the Virgin and moved over to this soundtrack division at Polygram Records, and my friend said, oh you know she's looking for um for a director level to come in and help her with soundtracks. You should you should reach out to her. So I did. And I got the job, and that is what started me on that tra- on this trajectory. I mm-hmm. and I for me the soundtracks was such a then at a label. Just so people listening understand, <laughs> were actually pretty much cash cows. Um, oh yeah, at that time, um, as I recall. Yeah, this is around the time of you know all those you know soundtracks like you know um, uh, Cruel Intentions and Godzilla. You know all those albums that were just overblown and in Romeo and Juliet and sold a gazillion copies. You know? Yep. I remember. And I'm, I, I, you know, I, I look back at that and I realize, wow, you know, my entire career came about because I checked my ego at the door and decided to just, um, to just do, you know, do what I needed to do. And, and also just to kind of maintain you know, um, communication with my contacts because it was referred to a friend. Yeah. Got it. And so, so how, long, how long at Polygram? Um, I was at Polygram for a year or two, and then they were bought by Universal. And then I was laid off, and you have to learn how to uh, bounce back. And I was laid off when Universal bought the company. And by that point, I had made enough friends in the film and TV community, music supervisors, music execs at the studios, that Based, a few of them started hiring me to do little independent consulting jobs. And the music supervision, you know, despite the fact that it was a cash cow at the time, as you say, it was like the label side was the cash cow. Supervisors, there still weren't all that many of us at the time. So it was, at the time, relatively easy to 
become friends with everybody. Also, I was younger, so I was actually going out at night and leaving the house. Right. So you did that independently for a while, and then somehow you, yeah. you kind of segued into the Disney ecosystem, right? Yeah. yeah one and that was around home video or children's or the channel, or I can't recall. What was that? Yeah, that um, one of the former music executives at Fox, uh, Matt Walker, I became friends with, and he ended up at Disney and called me and I, uh, just as a consultant gig on Cinderella 2, which is a direct-to-video musical. It was a sequel to Cinderella, if you can imagine. And that process went really well. So he brought me in full-time as a music supervisor. So in that role, you know, this was, you know, it, it sounded... It, it wasn't really that long ago, but the you know the early two thousands, nobody was making musicals. They were really out of fashion. Disney feature animation had moved on and was not making musicals anymore. They were doing um, uh, Chicken Little and Meet the Robinsons. You know, the the days of Little Mermaid and Aladdin were long gone, and you know big film live action musicals didn't exist either. So we were this direct to video company that was making sequels to uh, beloved animated classics. And I worked on Disney 2 and Tarzan 2 and Mulan 2 and, um, uh, sorry, and, uh, you know, Cinderella 2 and 3 and Bambi 2. And, uh, and we, we were the only people making musicals at the time. So I, that's how I learned. It was like boot camp, musical boot camp. Really. So then, I mean, that was a full-time job going from a consultant to a full-time employee. Yeah. Yeah. And I. Did you enjoy uh, it or was it? Oh, I, I, I loved it. And I, you know, I, I can maybe admit this now, but I was not raised a Disney kid. I was raised on science fiction and horror movies, not Disney stuff. So I had to do a quick crash course because I didn't know what, um, I don't know, the Aristocats was, you know, um, but it was really fun and I learned wow like this because there's multi music supervision has is a multifaceted business no two sides no two jobs are the same and there's sort of the, the side of the job that's more about picking and licensing songs and then there's the side of the job there's another version of the job that is what I what I focus on mostly which is creating musicals a lot of time in the studio a lot of time with actors and dancers and you know. and I was just fascinated and enthralled with the process of actually creating the music as opposed to finding it, you know? And it also, but it also invigorated my, my writing instincts because you become part of the storytelling process. You know, you're sitting there with the directors and the writers and the producers and you're figuring out how to, how music actually makes the story work. And oh, if we move this song over here and if this character actually sings it, then it tells it helps the story better than if you have it over here. Oh, and if you put this there, it, it really, it, it just became a very, uh, just creatively fulfilling uh, moment. That's great. I mean, is that when, a... When I got laid off again. <laughs> <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> and then did you do more independent stuff or did you take that jump to, to Lucasfilm at that point? No, I, uh, after... Uh, Disney, I went independent for a while. And by that point, music supervision really had become a thing, underlined. And boy, was it competitive. So I ended up really focusing on licensing and clearances because that 
help me pay the bills. Right. And I struggled for years. Uh, a couple of years, I, I just bought a house right before I <laughs> got laid off from Disney. So I had to keep the house afloat and just doing any weird little odd music job I could find. But, and I was at the end of my rope and, and like, okay, I'm going to have to sell the house. This is it. This is just not working out. And I got a call out of nowhere from Lucasfilm. And they said, hey, do you want to you want to move up to San Francisco and music supervise a film with George Lucas? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what a terrible, terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You want me to be up there in three days? Great. I'm on the way. Well, that yeah, is... Yeah, I, I literally was off for the job on a Wednesday, and I started up there full-time on Monday. Wow. And which film was that? Uh, this is The Ill-Fated Strange Magic. Yeah, tell me about this in, strange in magic. Yeah. yeah, it um, it was a, a an animated fairy tale musical that George um, really wanted to make because he he would say, "Look, Star Wars is for boys. I want to make something for girls." And so it was about two uh, two princesses that are sisters, and um, very loosely based on Midsummer Night's Dream. And and at the same time, he would say, "You know," and it was a jukebox musical made out of classic songs because he would say like he's like steve kids today don't know who the supremes and the beatles are and that's a problem and i wanted to teach them which to me was a really noble aspiration because i mean they're like really the you know over time you know thanks to streaming and you know being you being able to go on youtube and choose whatever song you want sometimes like the curiosity goes away and also learning about musical history sometimes goes away um because kids aren't exposed to Supremes, maybe right. every day. So we, were you able to license songs of that? Like, yeah, oh yeah, that, no, we, that we had, Oh, and by the way, you call um, a, you know, we had uh, Joe Myers, who's a brilliant clearance person, helping on this. You call, you call any studio, and you say, "Hey, I'm working on a musical you know, by George Lucas, and we want to license this Bob Marley song. Are you cool with that?" They're like, yeah, sure. And you know, also, I we had an unlimited budget, so you know, <laughs> so there was, you know, um, we had. Uh, we had uh, deep pockets and a great pedigree. So, of course, everyone wanted to be involved. I don't know that we ever got turned down, to be totally honest. Right. Was there a score involved? That was all just these classic yeah, so songs. I, there was score in uh, the music director, Marius DeVries, who you, I think you know. Marius, yeah. yep, yep, yep. Yeah. He was a music producer uh, who produced uh, York's solo material, Annie Lennox's solo material, and did a lot of work with Madonna on Ray of Light. Um, and he ended up segueing to, into film and was the, uh, music, was a music producer for Rome, for all of the Baz Luhrmann movies and then the Roman Juliet and, and, um, Moulin Rouge. So he sort of became the, at that time, the king of mashups and, co and creative covers. So he was on board on Strange Magic as our, uh, executive music producer. So he and I were, were partners and he was also the composer and that, you know, that relationship sort of propelled me into the next stage of my life. But it was just working on that project. You know, you know, I was also growing up a, a, you know, one of those weird Star Wars kids. And to work with George so closely was just a dream. And you could ask him anything. And, and that job was a dream come true. And then that company got bought by Disney. And, you know, and at that point, I'd moved on to being head of music for all of Lucasfilm. We weren't making a lot of output at the time, but I was working on Red Tails and um, this show called Star Wars Detours and Star Wars Rebels was just getting going. Um, and when Disney came in, 
you know, they, they sort of looked at Strange Magic and was like, what, what, what is this? Because we were really just off doing our own thing. And it was very strange and very dark. And How long did you work, work on it? Just to give everyone kind of an idea. <laughs> Five years. Five, Five years. years. Yeah. But and you were literally I, recording during that yeah. whole time. Oh, yeah. We, and by the way, you know, so, because we kept rewriting, you know, we went through so many drafts of that film. We kept rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. So every time we change a scene, I've got to find a new song for it. And then we have to record a new version of it and produce a new version of it. So there are, you know, hundreds, I'm not exaggerating, you know, hundreds of demos and recordings of every song that you can possibly think of uh, for this film. And we we're flying all over, you know, all over the world to, to do these things. And it was, it was really, really fun, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> and we were, you know, living, I, I lived in a cottage in a forest in Marin. And it was just, it was a really magical Time. And you know the cliche that it's not the destination; it's a journey. And the the um, you know the film wasn't very well received, but I learned so much, and I had this relationship with Marius that helped me move to the next thing. And and you know we were talking earlier about advice, and after we finished the movie, um, George was such a great mentor and father figure, and really warm, and and he you know put his he was really happy with the movie, and he. Um, uh, I asked him also, what do you, how do you think? How do you think people are going to react? And he put his hands on my shoulder and he said, you can't worry about that. You did a great job and you should be proud of your work. And now we move on to the next thing. You can't be concerned about what other people think. There you go. That's how <laughs> yeah, art is would always say, don't read the comments, <laughs> don't read the reviews. You know? <laughs> <laughs> So then Lucas gets bought, kind of blended into Disney. I'm sure that yeah. made for uh, an interesting time for you and maybe an exit at that point when that happened. Um, yeah, I got laid off again. <laughs> well, that's an exit. So um, yeah. so you kind of come back from, from Skywalker Ranch to L.A. Um, yeah. and start again as an independent music supervisor? Yeah, uh, that was uh, the goal. And by the way, at that time, you know, Strange Magic came out and it bombed terribly. And the, you know, you're sort of in this business as in most businesses, I guess, you're always, you know, you're always as good as your last project or people, that's how people view you, right? So um, I, oh God, Strange Magic, and it was bombed. And I'm, you know, I, by the way, was living in San Francisco for over four years. No one even remembers who I am anymore. Oh boy, what's going to happen? But um, very... Fortunately, Marius was working on a movie called La La Land at the time and had been nagging, and which didn't have a music supervisor. This was six months out from the shoot and Marius and I really clicked. We had a great partnership. And so he continued to bring my name up to the producers and to Lionsgate, the studio. And at a certain point, they, you know, Marius just you know, rang me. Like, hey, you want to come work on La La Land? Like, yep. And there you go. That's awesome. Yeah. And so when you do that, I mean, um, I have a million questions here and we're going to run out of time on this one thing. Um, but, oh, wow. We're, we're, wow. We're already. Um, yeah. Um, so you work with Damien. You, I mean, it's Justin Hurwitz already hired or do you guys hire the composers? Yeah. yeah. Justin Hurwitz is already part of this. You bring him in is in your role. No, Justin, um, Justin was already on. And by the way, I'd already met Justin multiple times because while Marius and I were working on Strange Magic, 
Dustin and Marius were developing the music for La La Land in the, in the same studio. So I would come in to see Marius to do Strange Magic stuff, and Justin would be there just finishing working on La La Land material, and we'd cross paths. So, you know, it, so, you know, it obviously helped. I think that I had already had a friendly relationship with Justin by seeing him and with the producer, so they knew who I was. Um, and, you know, Justin had been developing this material for years, uh, along with the scripts, because he, he and Damien had been friends for you know, since college. So the songs, right. most of them already existed by the time that I came on board. Some were more realized than others, and uh, some were very embryonic. But um, but he was already out. Got it. So tell me, how do you... Um, so you're six months out from shooting yeah, with a bunch of actors, not musicians or singers. How do you get like an actors up to that level of performing music like what's that take and what's your role in that and who else gets involved in that i mean that's got to be like a boot camp yeah well oddly enough so my so when i was initially brought on i wasn't music supervisor for for lot of that because they they thought that they wouldn't need one like the Lionsgate music department was going to handle it and i was brought on specifically to handle to manage ryan and emma and their training and rehearsal life. And the producer of the film basically looked at me and like, Nikki, this is a Trojan horse job and it's going to turn into the music supervisor job, but just do this for now. And, and I obviously jumped at it, but you know, they came to me because they knew of my history with Bowie and Lenny Kravitz and knowing how to uh, manage talent and schedule and, and, and coordinate. So you know, my the first month or two of my job was to structure, okay, you know, it was to, you know, build a life for the two of them and work with Mandy Moore, the choreographer, with Marius, uh, our music producer, and then with Eric Beecher, who was our vocal coach. And I had to sort of build this, a grid of, of what their life was like, right? Okay, Ryan, you, okay. And there was Liz Kinnon, who was a piano teacher for Ryan. So, okay, Ryan, every day you've got two hours with Liz. Okay, great. Then I've got this many hours left. And then, okay, so you're with Mandy doing choreography separately for this many hours a day. Then you guys overlap for a couple hours and then you go to see Marius and you go to a vocal lesson. So I just had to manage that Tetris for, for a while to bring them up to speed. And while doing that continue, I also had to report back to Damien and the producers with um, status checkups, whether it was, you know, bringing in really rough recordings on iPhones or videos from dance rehearsals, or just kind of, or you know, piano rehearsal, just to make sure that everyone was confident that things were moving along uh, appropriately. Because every, you know, everyone else in the show had you know plenty of other things to do, like figuring out how to get a hundred cars on a freeway, and, you know, dance. So the, the principal actors, Emma and Ryan, are not only learning how to become singers and to play the piano, but they're actually having <laughs> yeah. to. Yeah. They're having to do the choreography part too every day to get ready. Yeah, and it's it it really is boot camp, you know. And I and they worked so, so, so hard. I really can't express. I mean, just Ryan learning piano alone, you know, we we never used a hand double. We I, I had to hire one because you know, even if you don't hope that you're you know, you don't expect your house to burn down, but you get fire insurance anyway. So I had a um a hand double on deck just in case. We never use them. The guy never left his truck. Right. And, and the, the hand double knows how to play the piano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was okay. an actual classical pianist. 
Okay. And, but, uh, but yeah, they just, and it, it's, it's so much work and it, it, it is, it musicals are, are, I would imagine sort of similar to an action film where an actor has to get in shape. You know, Hugh Jackman eats nothing but chicken breasts and works out for six months leading up to a Wolverine movie, you know, and with these two actors, it's the same. There are every day, you know, this was, I think, starting in February or March, and we didn't start shooting until July. Uh, they were just in rehearsals all day long to the point where, you know, we needed to start getting them into Pilates and massages because they were just getting broken down. You know? Right. And I mean, what, look, that's a lot of pressure in a way. Look, it's a lot of pressure yeah. on them. It's pressure on you. I mean, what if you didn't get either of them to like the level they needed to be, um, you know, singers. I mean, what would have happened? I mean, is the whole thing just the tent folds and goes home or what, what happens? Well, you know, there was studio trickery, obviously, right. you know, right. but um, our goal, so. we had very specific goals. Though. You know, that's part of what I do too, is we sort of, we look at the, at the, at the landscape of the musical and we go, okay, well, and just the shoot, like, okay, well, these here we can, record live on set because if we have a controlled environment it's in emma it's in ryan's apartment Sebastian's apartment for city of stars we can record that live audition we can record live because it's just her but things like the freeway scene or someone in the crowd that are bigger and grander those are going to be pre-records anyway so you you get them to a level where the pre-record sounds confident but you know that you can continue to polish it and hone that all the way through post it's it's really dialing in on the ones that you know are going to be live that you know you, you record a, a solid pre-record anyway just in case um because you know something goes wrong on the day but but you really really focus more on those particular songs and just you know i mean audition was sort of we knew that that was the moment for her and for her character and we just we, it was sort of all hands on deck getting her there you know a, co a combination of the vocal coach and marius and all of us just um, uh, making sure she had the support she needed and, you know, enough time to get it right, but enough time off to rest the voice. You know? Right. And is, is, is a musical in general, a musical film, um, similar to like an action movie because pre-production and post-production maybe are more important than the actual shooting or is that yeah. not the case? No, it's, it's, it's somewhat the case. Because they're, you know, leading up to the shoot, there is just a significant amount of rehearsal and coordination and um, training. You know, sometimes you get, you know, coming off of In the Heights, most of the actors were really solid singers to begin with. So there wasn't too much training to do. But then you still, you know, you need to teach everybody the songs and just drill them on it. You've got to create crew records. You've got to, and once choreography comes into the picture, you have to, uh, you know, obviously make sure that the tempo of the song is appropriate for the movement. Right. And then there's always a back and forth involved of, oh, we need an extra two bars here for this person to get to the other side of the room. So can you change your track? And this just, it takes time, you know? Right. And so you I have to from... leave time for margin of error, right? Like, okay, right. well, this isn't working. And if you're, you have to be far enough ahead of, of, of the game that if something isn't working, you do have time to, to reinvent it. Because otherwise, if you're if you're late, you're behind schedule, then you just don't. So this, I mean, did you know what this was at the time, or did did it did your instincts go off and say, whoa, 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 this is this is a big deal, this is a hit? 
yes and no. We all were so convinced of the, of, of the, 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 the magic of the story and of Damien's storytelling ability and of the music. We knew it was something special. Whether, like, I don't know that any of us expected the world to react as enthusiastically as it did, frankly. I mean, I, I think, I mean, I personally expected, oh, it, you know, the people that love it will love it. The people that don't like it will not like it. And it'll be, you know, maybe a moderate hit. And, and that, it'll be that movie that people love, but maybe isn't, you know. Because, uh, you know, there was no track record of a, an original musical being successful for decades. Right. So there's nothing to, to to point to. Now we can point to a La La Land or a Greatest Showman. Back then you couldn't. So we were just crossing our fingers. But I, we were in Venice. And we, th- we took it to Venice for the premiere. And, you know, after the after the screening and we're all just sweating bullets. And, um, you know, there was sta- a standing ovation for like eight minutes or whatever it was. And then the reviews were all pouring in and they were just glowing. And we just were... Um, stunned and and related. That's a shitload of talent there. I mean, you know, Damien has proved himself. I mean, Marius is his own genius, right? And Justin Hurwitz is obviously very talented. And then throw you in the mix. So that's a that's a roomful of talent, man. I just, I mean, I what a what a brilliant. uh, I'm not brilliant. Not the right word, but I just feel so blessed to have. Um, happened upon that film. I mean, it changed my life in every which way, you know? Yep. Amazing. So, uh, you know, and I have to ask, there's no way you're getting out of this without me asking. So you were up on that stage at Oscar night, right? (laughs) Yes. Explain. Yes, I was there. (laughs) I just got to hear a firsthand take on that moment. It was um, a moment for the ages. And that's very still weird because I, every year around Oscar time, I get to see my 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 shell shocked face in in the newspapers and on television again. Um, it was you know you became the, a meme. <laughs> it was very strange, very weird. Very weird. No, I mean, I didn't, didn't expect to wake up the next day and to have my my face on the cover of every newspaper in the entire world, literally, because I was standing next to Emma, so therefore I was you know, featured in everything. Um, it was, you know, we, we obviously, we, you know, it was what, what a high, such a high and then such a low. That wasn't even a low. It was just a what the? Um, we, you know, we all ran up and we're hugging each other and everything is going great. And then um, all of a sudden there were these people running around behind me. And myself and Emma and Justin Paul looked at each other like, wait, is this, what's happening? Is this normal? And then the guy with the, you know, people with walkies running around behind us. And that's when they brought the, the other envelope up to Warren Beatty and the producers. And, and you just sort of get this feeling, this feeling in your stomach that something isn't right, you know, and you're standing there in front of, you know, looking at <laughs> Michelle Williams and Meryl Streep <laughs> in the front row. <laughs> like, Hello. Um, and was it in real time what, or did it slow down no, at that point? <laughs> it was in, it was in, in this black hole of everything happening at once, you know? Um, and I, what I don't know that you, what you can't see on television is uh, uh, Jordan Horowitz, one of our producers, who's the one that held up the envelope or the card. Um, he actually, like, I just can't believe that he had the 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 sense and the strength and the maturity to, to. He actually turned to us first 
and said, guys, there's been a mistake. We didn't win. It's not us. And which is such a sign of a, a, a like, what, a, what an amazing sign of an amazing producer. That, that's, that's your responsibility. First and foremost, it's your crew. It's your team. And he turned around and told us first. And then he spun around to the crowd and held the card up. Mm. Wow. And, you know, meanwhile, by the way, of course, two producers had, been, had given their acceptance speeches. And, and you know, Moonlight comes up and, you know, we were friends with the Moonlight people. There was no rivalry because we'd been doing the film festival circuit with them for six months. So they were our friends. And um, it's a beautiful movie. And, it is. But then we're just standing there like, uh, okay, what do we do now? <laughs> so we all just kind of like just shuffled sideways off the stage to just get up out of the camera range. Incredible. So. And, you know, it was just weird. And, it, you know, it, 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 it was upsetting for the producers who worked so hard and, and for it to have been kind of, you know, it, it was a very weird moment for everybody and some, everybody reacted differently. Um, you know, there's that footage of Ryan giggling. Yes. Um, and some people were really shell shocked and upset and some, and just numb. And, you know, you sort of don't know how to feel afterwards. Right. What a, what a cluster. It was surreal. Cause at yeah. home watching it, you couldn't really tell. It's like, is this a put on? Like, is this like, you know, is this like the final like joke they're having at us at all, all of our expenses? I mean, what is this? So you worked like towards um, last year and stuff. You were working with Lin Manuel Miranda on in the In the Heights film. Is that the next kind of well, thing? In, you could... in between that, I worked on uh, King Spirit, Max Minghella's right. film in London, and I did animated movie Small Foot for Warner Brothers. And uh, during when that did period, you do I the Fosse? When did you do the Fosse version? Uh, that was 2019. Okay, and you got and an Emmy actually, nomination for that, yeah, right? Yeah, which is really that was amazing. I mean, my God, how crazy was that? And that project was so fun because that that is part of what led to In the Heights, but more what actually proved to be the, the catalyst for In the Heights more than anything really is after La La Land had come out, um, John Chu was shooting um, Crazy Rich Asians in Singapore and Malaysia, and there suddenly they had a, a, a few on camera music moments more than were expected, I guess. And the music supervisor couldn't travel. And I'm friends with the Warner Brothers music department. And John's like, oh, look, I need somebody there to manage these. And the Warner Brothers music department said, oh, well, um, we can send Steve. He did La La Land. And John's like, yeah, fine, great. And, you know, so through jetting off to Singapore for a month, which is, a, you know, pretty spectacular, and it established a relationship with John. And then I ended up working on Fosse Verdon with Alex Lackamore. Uh, Lynn's uh, music director and also with Lynn and so the combination of all those events led to me just sort of being you know, seeming to be the natural choice for In the Heights and um, I, I you know, La was really special especially for all sorts of reasons and it was lightning in the bottle and you know we all work on these things in our lifetime like oh I, you know I that was a really great moment I'm putting it on the shelf because nothing will ever replicate that right and while making in the heights, we were in pre-production. I left a recording session with John Chu, and we were talking, and we sort of looked at each other like, Are, "Do you feel this? Is this? Am I? Is it just me?" And I, he laughed, and I burst into tears on you know, on Forty Seventh Street because I suddenly had it hit me that 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 Long Island wasn't my only like I like something else magical was happening, and I just felt so blessed, so lucky to be. You know, uh, you know, to have uh, such a, uh, an incredible experience 
more than once in my life, you know? Right. Well, the intersection of all this stuff is just, it's, it's, you know, it's just, and this is kind of what I'm trying to get to with this podcast is like, you know, the momentum, right? And the, I don't even know how to explain it. I mean, it's just, it's years of work, right? And then it just yeah. happens and it looks like a tidal wave. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's, I've it's been like, doing this for 20 years. Yeah, I've been yeah. doing it for 20 years. I'm, I'm a 20-year overnight sensation. Right, but you see why people <laughs> think things are overnight successes, though. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. it's like all these little strands of DNA connect at one point. It just blows yeah. up. And I wouldn't be here without working on Bambi 2. You know, I wouldn't be here without having, you know, gotten you know, laid off from that and being forced to do this and, and taking weird jobs doing music licensing because then that led to this. And you know, it's all, it's, it's all, um, you know, tools that you put in your toolkit and people that you meet along the way, you know, had, you know, I met Marius at, at, at Strange Magic, which is you know, not a, a successful movie, but, but what a successful creative um, experience it was, you know? Amazing. And I mean, Lin-Manuel Miranda is truly a genius, right? I mean, he's got more talent. It, you know, in his pinky that he, I have my whole entire body and he's just a genius, right? Yeah. He's really just, uh, I mean, you know, you want to say national treasure, but it's an internet, a worldwide treasure. Um, he's really just warm and, you know, apart from just being a, a, a genius and, and writing such amazing songs, he's giving and collaborative and supportive and nurturing it's, it's it's really it's really something and you know I, I he's directing tick tick boom now well not now now we're <laughs> on pause but you know he's just he's you know this is the first time officially directing anything and, and, I, and he's just as you would imagine just taken to it yeah i'm i'm in awe of him he's he's yeah. he's high on my pedestal of idols <laughs> so well it's just it, it, there's that there's that thing that people have and it's just, and it's, he can be fast too. Like, you know, I, we needed to write one new little, there, there, there's this is some stuff that needed to be re reworked for in the Heights. And I've been badgering about him about it. And he left, you know, we were in a recording studio and he went outside to the couch area for a few minutes and came back and he's like, Oh, I just did it. And I just emailed it to you. Like, how does that happen? Like, how do, <laughs> like, how do you reconstruct an entire song well, I thought you were just in the restroom, you know, I mean, it's <laughs> amazing. I, you know, I'm here eating a pita sandwich and you just. <laughs> so we're getting close here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to, I'm going to try to close this out. So on the um, Tick, Tick, Boom, I mean, this is a little bit of a, it's a Jonathan Larson musical that he wrote. I mean, it's somewhat self-biographical or not, or. Yeah. It, you know, for those of, for those of you at home that aren't familiar. Uh, Jonathan Larson, uh, who wrote the musical Rent, this was his musical that he wrote before Rent. And it was very um, off-Broadway at the time. Uh, later revived with Lynn starring in it, by the way. That was Lynn's first, one of Lynn's Oh, he first, did? Oh, wow. One of his first gigs, which is why he has such a close affection or, uh, to, the, to the project. Um, and it's it's very autobiographical. You know, the lead, it was if the, you know, show by Jonathan Larson starring a character named Jonathan, you know? Um, and it's about a musical theater writer who just is struggling to uh, write his musical and just has hit, has hit a block. And it's him, his relationship, that's falling apart because he, he can't make anything work. 
So it's 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 about the creative process. It's about friendships. It's about love, and it's and it's it's about um, the the never ending struggle of, of of an artist. And you know, I'm not spoiling it because the show is the show. Like it's it's you know, it, it's also about like, okay, great, you've done this one thing. What's next? Like you, it, it's about not resting on laurels and always having to just keep pushing, 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 and, and moving forward. That's great. Yeah, I remember. Um my New York years, you know, always hanging out at Don Hills down there and, you know, at Spring Street, a club, Spring Street in Greenwich. And Jonathan was around then, you know, so it was a little bit of a, I don't know, a little buzz on him because he'd hang around at Don Hills. Um, but sadly taken from us early and definitely very talented. And, you know, we, it's, it's been such a great experience for working with his um, family because they're very involved in this. And, and, and he has uh, you know, essentially an, a librarian that keeps all of his archives together. So digging through all of his archives for, you know, listening to material that never saw the light of day. You know, it's just, it's, 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 it's really special, but also such a shame. Right. So is all the material uh, the same as, as he did it? I mean, are you enhancing things? Is anything being updated? Is it, is it yeah, as I mean, it was written? It, it's 2020 and the show was early nineties. When was yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it has to be updated to a point, but the film is also is, is a period piece in the nineties. So, you know, it's, it's somewhat updated, but also, you know, you know, it, it's different because we were in your, you know, as with anything that goes from stage to screen, you know, on stage you have, there is, there are limits to what your orchestra can be, how many players you can have, how much pre-recorded material you can use for union reasons. So when you transport it to the screen, you can do anything, you know, I mean, for mm. in the Heights, for example, you know, these, every song just goes up to the next level because, Oh, now we can have, you know, we can, we get a, can have, you know, go for, you know, have a hip hop producer contribute and then it just can become you know, just, just really contemporary and crazy. And for tick, tick, boom, we just seem that there, we can, um, function in more of a, um, you know, a lot of these are sort of are, are pop rock songs at their core and you know, not being constrained by a pit orchestra and that sound, like we can make them sound more like, um, like radio song of the, of the era. Right. Hmm. Fascinating. I can't, well, I can't wait for both of them actually. So, yeah, well, and I don't do, I don't do musicals. Now, I don't know. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, you know, there, there's a lot of, yeah. Or do you fall on that side of the spectrum? You're not a musical fan. I am not. I have to say, it's it's. I'm one of those rare birds that uh, doesn't quite get them. Even though I've seen, you know, I've seen a few of the rock ones, right? Like We Will Rock You and American Idiot. Um, so, but in, in general, you know, something that's not an edgy kind of thing. I as a musical, I wouldn't be a fan of. But these something for everyone. There's always a Hedwig, you know. So. Yeah, there um, is. There is. I so. I just love it because it's it's such a. I guess you know I love functioning in non-reality. <laughs> Maybe I mean there's just something just transporting about characters that break into song. And you know, I work in music, so if I live, you know, being on set all day and you're just around all these people singing and dancing, how great is that? You know, um, it's part of the just the fantastical. Um, nature of, of, of movie making it just it's 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 next level um magic 
visual and music together, man, it's, it's otherworldly really, you know, and the best people make it that way. And anyway, um, that's my favorite Oscar clips are always that, you know, when, you know, those those clips where people put the wrong music under, under iconic movie scenes, just to show, (laughs) (laughs) to demonstrate how different it would be, you know? Yep. I love, I love those montages. It's great. So listen, um, a lot to cover. I look forward to COVID ending so that you and I can maybe finish up on some of these projects once they're kind of finished um, and talk about those. But I'm really grateful that you made time today. And I mean, it's been fascinating, man. And your last um, 10 years have been really remarkable. So, well, you know, it, As we said, it, 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 it took another 10 years before that to get there, you know, and yeah. I, I'm just, I, like, I have to always be so appreciative and grateful and also just, I, I, you know, I also love what I do, you know, God, I don't know what else I would do if this didn't exist. Well, that's what it takes to get over these hurdles. Um, yeah. so, yeah. all right, well, thank you for making time, Steve, stay healthy. Um, I hope one day I'll see you in person. I hope so too. Um, and thanks thank for, thanks for doing this. Thank you. You're ever so welcome. Well, that's our show this week. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe even learned a little something. To follow what's going on with this podcast, you can go to theradicalpod.com. Um, theradicalpod.com. You'll find show notes and past episodes and uh, even a little swag there if you want a t-shirt or a hat. Also, I would be honored if you'd subscribe at Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Till next week. Bye.